In 2 Samuel 23, as the author is wrapping up the, this book of Samuel and recounting the life of King David and recounting the many wars that they were victorious in, in chapter 23, the author recounts David's mighty men. David surrounded himself with the greatest warriors that Israel had had ever known. In fact, what made David so great was a leadership principle that he learned, which was to surround himself with the best of the best. And there was three men that David surrounded himself with, these mighty, valiant men. He had many mighty men, but he had three top generals that were the fiercest warriors in the nation of Israel. They were rightly named mighty men. They were strong and fierce. They tore down thousands upon thousands of Philistine soldiers. They routed the enemy time and time again. And as the author is recounting the characteristics of these mighty men, it wasn't their military skill or even their physical strength that the author notes about them. But there was one chief characteristic about these mighty men that they all had in common. It's that when the battle was the most fierce, when the war was the strongest, when the enemy was the largest, these three men did one thing. They stood their ground. They stood firm. We're told that these three mighty men, in any battle they faced, never ran from the battle line, but stood their ground and stood firm against the enemy. They were men who David could count on, men who David could send into the battle and know that they wouldn't run in fear from the enemy. While we don't fight literal battles in our lives, we are not called to some kind of holy war. We have been thinking together how God is revealed to us in his word that we are in the midst of a spiritual war, a war that we cannot see with our physical eyes, an enemy that is unseen and powerful and greater than us. We don't fight these literal battles, but we are in a spiritual battle. And the exhortation for us this morning is what we need to be as Christians, as men and women who stand strong, who stand firm in the midst of spiritual battles. To stand firm. To stand our ground. To not run in fear when the enemy rears his ugly head at us. But by properly applying the armor of God, we will be ready to stand firm. Well, just to give us a bit of context here in this passage that we'll think about this morning, Paul has been wrapping this letter of Ephesians up. He's been concluding it by really bringing it to a fitting kind of practical application for the everyday Christian life. Right? So often when we read the Bible, we, we learn about how oh, we need to put on moral virtues. We need to put on love and compassion and kindness. We need to put off the old ways. And, and sometimes these are mere principles. We, we don't really think about them 
in terms of practical application. What Paul is doing here in, in Ephesians 6 is saying, well, here is where the rubber meets the road. Here is some practical, everyday application. And he began by saying that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And, and we can't go about this battle in our own strength. And so he encouraged us to be strong, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. He reminded us of our need for this armor we're going to think about this morning. So last week, the exhortation to us was, was for us to really just to see the need. If we are to live this new way in Christ, if we are going to pursue and following Christ, if we're going to count the cost and, and to follow him, we need to understand that we are going to face opposition. The evil one is not thrilled that we have been delivered from his kingdom, his reign and rule, and now delivered into the kingdom of Christ. We thought about how the fact that while we are up against an enemy, this is a defeated enemy. And to be very clear this morning, uh, this passage never says we need to go out and, and slay the evil one. This passage doesn't say anything about us going to battle against Satan. All this passage tells us is to stand your ground, ground already won. You see, we're facing a defeated enemy. Our enemy has been defeated on the cross. Paul tells us in Colossians that, that through the cross, he disarmed the principalities and powers and put them to, to public spectacle, made a spectacle of them. And as is so often in even modern warfare, that when the enemy has been defeated, he puts up a fight. He, he doesn't go home quietly, and nor does our enemy. And so we're up against an enemy that's been defeated. And our hope this morning is to think about standing firm against this enemy. Well, friend, I invite you to turn to page 979 in your pew Bibles or Ephesians 6. We, again, as been studying this passage, over the next few weeks, we'll be wrapping up this letter, moving on. But this morning, we'll consider verses 14 through 17. Ephesians 6, 14. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul outlines here the armor of God and his point is made clear in verse 14. Stand. As Christians, we are to stand firm in the midst of spiritual warfare by applying this armor of God. By putting God's armor on, you and I will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. So we want to think this morning about these various parts, these six parts or six aspects of the armor of God. For many of you, you might know this passage quite well. Uh, my hope for you this morning 
is that you will see that this armor of God passage hasn't just been glued on to the end of Ephesians, but rather is like a thread in a tapestry, in a quilt, how it runs throughout it, and how Paul is summarizing all that he said, packaging it together in a very memorable way, even for our 21st century minds to remember these pieces of clothing that we are to put on. Well, let's look here at the text. The outline is, is probably very straightforward to us this morning. There are six pieces of armor that we are to apply, and uh, we want to think about each of those this morning in turn. So let's look at the first one found in verse 14, the belt of truth, the belt of truth. Before we jump into the belt of truth, I do want to just remind you of the main exhortation of this entire paragraph. I've pointed it out throughout. I've taught on it last week, and I'll teach on it again now. Look at verse 14. The main imperative of this entire passage from verse 10 to verse 20 is this, stand. Stand. It's a picture, right, of a, of a military soldier standing firm, unmoving. He doesn't move. He doesn't go anywhere. He's standing there with his armor. He's like those uh, uh, funny-looking uh, soldiers outside of Buckingham Palace, right? The ones you know uh, just stand there. They don't move. People make faces at them. They uh, do silly things in front of them. They just stand there. They don't move. It's a picture of a fortress, unmovable unshakable, unafraid of, of things going around. And Paul is saying, as believers, we are to stand, to stand strong. Oh, how are we to stand? As he says in verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first piece of armor that Paul describes here is one of a belt. A Roman soldier would have wore a belt around his waist in order to hold his pants up, as belts are meant for, right? You don't need to be a, a scholar to figure these things out. A belt holds your pants from falling to the ground. Literally, he says, gird up, right? Hold up your, your pants. Get them held securely. The imagery here is of a soldier moving. If he's going to move, he's got to have his belt on. If not, he's going to lose his pants. What secures him is the truth of God. What secures this soldier in his mind is the truth of God. Now, as we begin to think about what Paul is doing here, Paul is alluding and using someone else. This is not new, if you will, to Paul. Paul, his favorite Old Testament book was probably the book of Isaiah. Paul regularly alludes to Isaiah's writings in, in his scriptures that and here in this passage, Paul is alluding to Isaiah 11. Listen to Isaiah 11. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah is referring to the Messiah. How when the Messiah comes, he'll have belts. His belt will be truth. This revealed truth about God. And, and this, this righteous one who's coming, righteousness shall be the belt and faithfulness or truthfulness, the belt of his loins. It's helpful for us to remember this morning that the armor that Paul is describing in this particular passage is the armor that Christ wore when he went to war against sin and death. 
And what Christ is inviting us to put on this morning is his armor. This is God's armor that we're applying to our lives. And as the valiant, righteous one came, he came with truth. Meaning that he came to reveal the truth about God, about ourselves, about sin and righteousness and truth. Throughout this section, Paul has alluded to this truth. Just look over, if you will, to verse 24 of chapter 4. When Paul tells them to put on the new self, notice how he describes this new self, that it's created after the likeness of God in true, in truth, in true righteousness and holiness. As Christians, we are to put on what's true. Versus what's false. We'll see in just a moment. This is why it's so important for us to, to spend time in, in the word. Because the word is where the truth is revealed. This is where we learn that we are a sinner in need of a savior. And so if we are to stand against the schemes of the devil, we must stand on the truth. It's what keeps us together. It's what keeps our minds from drifting away. One of the ways that the enemy attacks most is with the truth. Jesus told us that that the devil is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. So friend, this morning, I just wonder, are you prone to error in your life? Are you prone to theological error? This is why as Christians it is so important for us to regularly have conversations about what we're thinking about and what we're reading and what we're hearing. I've talked to so many Christians over the years who will will start listening to a false teacher and they won't even know it. One of the ability to discern because they're sort of out on their own listening to falsehood. The enemy is just sort of assailing them with lies. Or maybe the enemy's lying to you this morning about, about who you are in Christ. He's deceiving you and, and causing you to think that that because of your sin, that God doesn't want you, or, or because you are supposed to have your life together as a Christian, you keep failing, that God somehow is done with you. How is the enemy deceiving you? For as Christians, we stand firm by, by standing or, or, or having our lives put together on the truth revealed in Scripture. Know the truth. Study the truth. Don't rely on others to tell you the truth. Study it yourselves. So let us stand firm by fastening truth on like a belt. Not only to have the truth, but notice here, secondly, sort of second part or piece or aspect of this armor is, is a breastplate of righteousness. Paul continues, he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, here he's alluding to Isaiah 59. That this Messiah will put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he will put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrap himself in zeal as a cloak. Our Messiah came, the Christ came with the breastplate of righteousness. 
So often we neglect to think about the righteous life of Christ. There's a purpose in why the gospel writers are regularly showing us in how Christ followed his father's will. It's the righteous life of Christ. And here in this passage, it seems to point not so much at the the forensic righteousness of Christ, that is the imputed righteousness of Christ, but our breastplate of righteousness is righteous living. You see, if, if you're living a righteous life, the enemy, he can't affect your heart. The breastplate would protect your, your vital organs, protect your heart. The enemy wants to get to your heart, but if you're pursuing righteousness, if right living before God, holy living, God's righteous standards, the enemy, friends, it's like this. It's when Paul exhorts the elders to live above reproach. You know what that means? It means that when an accusation comes against an elder, if he is living above reproach, those accusations can't stick. You've experienced this, right? Someone says something, maybe a character flaw in another, and and you hear it, you're like, no, I know that. That, that. That cannot be true about them. Because they live above reproach. Well, friend, that's the same for us as Christians. If we are living righteously, we are able to stand against the sin that the devil so often tempts us with. We're not going to be distracted by sin if our eyes are fixed on right living. This is again what Paul is alluding to earlier here in Ephesians 4. That we are to put on this new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If we're regularly putting on new righteous deeds and putting off the old man, we're, we're preparing ourselves to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, Paul continues, not only are we to protect our hearts with this breastplate like Guarding us, notice what he says there in verse 15. With shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In other words, Paul says, get your shoes on. One of the most important pieces of a Roman soldier's gear, his armor, wasn't necessarily his shield or his sword, but his shoes. In fact, Roman soldiers had shoes that were specially created, unlike any other, that, that give, gave them the, the ability to travel long distances. They, of course, weren't like our modern footwear today, but, but they were innovative in that they allowed these soldiers to be able to travel long distances. Anyone who trains in military, uh, even today, one of the early things they teach you is to make sure that your feet are protected. You are no good to anyone if you can walk. And here Paul exhorts them to stand their ground with feet firmly fixed, with good shoes fitted upon them. Well, what are these shoes that he refers to? Notice what he calls them. Look there in verse 15 again. Having put on his shoes the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Again, Paul here is pulling from Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, the gospel. 
who, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Well, who is this one who proclaims peace? Who is this one who, who heralds this good news? Well, we were told in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17 that Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. Christ Jesus came and proclaimed a message of reconciliation. The gospel message is a message of peace, not merely peace with one another, but peace with God. That God is no longer at war with us. But through the death of Christ, he has laid down his armor and he has laid down the battle and he, he has reconciled us. This is what we sing at, at the Christmas season, right? That peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. Spiritual war that we were willing participants in. We have been rescued. And Christ has come and preached a message of peace. Paul here is exhorting these Christians to stand firm on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we could summarize it this way. Get your evangelistic shoes on. One of the ways you can stand against the wiles of the enemy and the schemes of the devil is to be regularly sharing the gospel of peace. You see, if your life is occupied with the with the message of Christ and calling sinners to faith in Christ and in repentance, well then, friend, you're not going to be concerned about these petty temptations that the enemy keeps throwing your way. In recent days and in recent months, last year, a particular evangelist became popular again because the vice president of the United States adopts, adopted a particular rule that this evangelist had. Many know today is the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham had a rule about himself. He would never dine with or travel with any female alone. Anytime he would meet with a, a fellow female worker in his association, he'd always do it with others. He, he never wanted one whisper, one doubt. And you know, there never was. There's a lot of preachers out there today and famous preachers who've had accusations given against them. And, and some people kind of scratch their head and say, yeah, I think that could probably stick. But to Billy Graham, those accusations would never stick. You see, he was an evangelist that had a singular focus. He didn't want to do anything that would tarnish the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, that's a silly rule and, and kind of archaic and outdated. But you see, what motivated him was this passage. What concerned him was that he knew his own wicked heart. He knew the temptations and the schemes of the evil one. He knew the enemy was going to throw fiery darts at him. And he was going to stand strong with evangelistic feet. Friend, is the enemy coming at you? One way that you can stand firm against him, this passage says, is by regularly sharing the gospel. You know, if you're wanting to share the gospel with your secretary, it's, it's kind of hard to, to also imagine you having an affair with her. If your hope is to share the gospel with your neighbor, it's hard for you to you know, constantly be raking your leaves into his yard. If you want to share the gospel with those who you hate or who hate you, well, doesn't it change your perspective? 
You see, the enemy comes at us in many ways. But if our eyes are constantly seeing people as sinners in need of a savior, well, doesn't that begin to transform the way we approach our relationships? Friends, let us stand firm by regularly opening our lips and telling others, use your holiday meals as an opportunity not to to quibble and, and argue with your relatives to pray for their souls that they would come to know Christ and be saved for his glory. While having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having fitted our feet rightly, our belt of truth upon us, Paul goes on in verse 16 to say that we must pick up the shield of faith. Notice there in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul here not only gives us the context that the shield of faith, but also the purpose of the shield of faith. For a Roman soldier, oftentimes we see pictures of them. We see that little small, little dinner plate size plate. That's not what Paul's talking about here. You say they had a, they had a shield that they would use that was as big as a door. Yeah, just carrying that thing around. A big old door shield. And these, these shields were massive. They would protect the entire body. And the picture that Paul paints here for us is exactly what these shields were for. You see, they would, the enemy would take darts and they would dip them in pitch and light them on fire. And if you've ever thrown something on fire, you know that when it lands, that fire begins to spread. It goes everywhere. And you see these darts would hit these shields and it would spread and cause chaos in the camp and the line would be broken. But these Roman soldiers would take these shields and dip them in water so that when these flaming darts would hit them, they would be extinguished. They'd be put out. And what Paul here is describing are these shields, but not shields that we literally carry, but rather shields of faith that extinguish the attacks and assails of the enemy. Notice here in verse 16 what he says. The context in which we are to take up this shield of faith is in all circumstances. In all circumstances. Throughout this passage, Paul has been using that word all repeatedly to emphasize uh, in a broad way that there isn't really a time when you don't need this armor. There's not a season in your life. There's not a, a moment in the day where the shield of faith is unneeded. You see, the enemy doesn't just give up with one attack. He continually blows one after another. His darts continue to fly. And so Paul says, you need to have this shield of faith with you in all circumstances. Paul here is referring to our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our trust in the truth we know. The point here isn't to sort of quantify our faith, but rather to see what is your faith in. The only thing that will overcome the assaults of the enemy are, or is rather, your faith. Your trust in God. Your trust in Him. As the Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. 
How does the shield of faith work? The shield of faith works when you know the truth of God and you trust it. When the enemy comes and tempts you, you trust that God's word is good and true. When the enemy comes and says, God wants the best for you, and it's okay, he, I mean, it's, it'll be okay. And as he tempted Eve in that cunning way in the garden, God wants the best for you, Eve, it'll be okay. You can respond with no. <laughs> the truth of God's word says this. You see, we stand strong. The only way, the only tool that can extinguish these flaming darts of the evil one is our faith in Christ, in the finished work of Christ. And so when the enemy comes and tempts you to doubt God's love for you, to doubt whether or not you're truly a child of God, you, you come to passages like Ephesians 1 and you say, by faith, I believe these are true. That he predestined me to be a child of God. I am a child of God. Not because of any righteousness done in me. I believe that God saved me by his great love. That he loves us. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Or that you've been saved by grace through faith? Perhaps the enemy is tempting you this morning to think that You've got to work harder to earn God's love. Perhaps the enemy's tempting you this morning by your past. My past is so dark. There must be something I have to do for God to love me, for God to accept me. Surely he can't save me by any other means. But through faith, Paul tells us, we're saved. We're delivered from our sin and from the evil one through our faith. It is a shield that guards our hearts. I wonder this morning, where have you fallen in your temptations this week? What temptation have you fallen into? Take a moment today to think about ways you've fallen in temptation this week. Perhaps it was pride. Perhaps it was gossip. Perhaps it was envy. Perhaps it was lust. And here's what we don't do well as Christians. We don't think about what were the steps that led up to that fall. Maybe it was I didn't have a shield of faith. Maybe I was trusting in myself. Maybe my trust was really in my own strength and not the Lord's strength. And so I was given in to pride. Perhaps I forgot that I'm saved by grace alone and not by works. That my life is really not about me, but about God. Where, where did you fall this week? How is it that the enemy got you? Brother, sister, don't just move on without reflecting on where your armor is weak. But let us stand against the evil one with a shield of faith. Well, Paul continues, verse 17, with the fifth aspect of the armor of God. And it's the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. 
Again, Isaiah 59, we are told that this Messiah wore, the Christ would wear in, in battle a helmet of salvation upon his head. Paul tells us here to take up, to take upon ourselves, to put on the helmet of salvation. These Roman soldiers would wear a massive helmet. Many of us, I would probably say probably all of us, would not have the, the neck muscle strength in order to hold these heavy bronze helmets up, massive in its size. Huge sponge in there just to keep the pressure from crushing their head. Cumbersome. But here's the thing about that helmet. It was heavy, but they had a confidence in it that they knew that anything that hit it would bounce right off of it. They knew that if they had this helmet on their head, their heads were protected. Something else might happen, but their head would be secure. It's how strong it was. It's how secure it was. And Paul here says that they're to take up this secure salvation, this assurance salvation, this hopeful expectation of the promises that he's already shared with them. A promise like this. That in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul here is is encouraging them to stand firm with hopeful expectation that the battle has been won and that one day the king is coming to finally and fully destroy this enemy. The helmet of salvation gives us hope to keep going. To not give up. To not turn and run and hide. John Calvin helpfully writes as he's thinking about this helmet of salvation. He says this, the dead, the head rather, is protected by the best helmet. When elevated by hope, we look upward to heaven. To that salvation which is promised. It's only therefore by becoming the object of hope. That salvation is a helmet. You see, our salvation in Christ is secure. It's our assurance. When the enemy comes and is blowing you again and again, when the waves of doubt we sing, right, crash upon us, Christ is our sure and steady anchor. He is our hope. Brother, sister, where? Have you grown weary in the midst of the battle? Stand firm with the hope of deliverance. Salvation will come. Deliverance will come. Endure with hopeful expectation. You begin to see now how each of these pieces of armor interrelate to one another. How each of these pieces are all related to one central truth. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God created man in his image. But that, but that we willfully rebelled against him. And entered into a cosmic war with the creator. That we were sons of disobedience. That we hated God. And wanted nothing to do with him. But God in his amazing love for us. That while we were yet sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world. 
And he lived the perfect life that you and I should have in perfect obedience to the Father. And he died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He died for the death your sin rightly deserves. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that he was raised for our justification. That God declared us forgiven and righteous through the resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. And that all those who would turn away from this cosmic rebellion, lay down their swords against God and trust in Christ alone, would be saved and would be delivered from the kingdom of the evil one and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so that our enemy who's been defeated, we stand against his attacks through the very same gospel message in everyday life. But there's one last piece of armor. The sixth aspect here is the sword of the Spirit. Look here at verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again here, he's alluding to Isaiah 49 and verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in the quiver. He hid me away. The sword is the, the weapon that the Christian uses to stand against. Here Paul describes what the sword of the Spirit is. He leaves it not to our own imagination, but the sword of the Spirit, he says, is the Word of God. Now, the word that Paul uses here for word, right here, verse 17, you see the word word, isn't his typical word. So when it's referring often to the Word made flesh, the logos made flesh, here he uses a different word, the message of God. In other words, what, what Paul is saying is that the Spirit of God uses the gospel message to effectively defeat the enemy. See, it's the gospel message that, that we wield against the, the evil one. It's the truth about God and about us and about Christ that we wield against the enemy. And friend, it is sad when I hear Christians who do not know the gospel. You claim to follow Christ, yet you don't know and can't communicate the message that you believe? Have you forgotten what you trust in? What you believe in? When Jesus faced the temptation of the, the devil in the wilderness, what was it that he used to overcome the evil one? Well, it wasn't his supernatural power. He didn't call a legion of of angels to come and rescue him. He didn't use his own power, but rather he trusted in this sword of the Spirit. He used the Word of God, the revelation, this truth, and with that he overcame the evil one. Calvin again writes helpfully, By faith we repel all the attacks of the devil. And by the Word of God, the enemy himself is slain. If the Word of God shall have its effects efficacy rather upon us through faith we shall be more than sufficiently armed for opposing the enemy and for putting him to flight 
Friend, do you know the word? Do you know the message? Do you regularly read the word? Could it be that you fall into temptation so often because you neglect this word? Friend, if you don't spend a day every day in God's word, I guarantee you, you will fall. I guarantee it. The Bible guarantees it. Christian, listen. I know the new year is going to be upon us soon and you're going to dust off those old Bible reading plans and try to give a go at it again. And by May, you'll, you'll be done. But if you would take this section of Scripture seriously, you are up against an enemy that is cosmic in power, whose darkness is darker than your imagination in its worst nightmares. And you fool think that you're going to overcome temptation with any other means than the sword of the Spirit, that powerful word of God, that he takes this word and it pierces your own soul against the enemy. How are you being so prideful as to neglect God's word? How are you being so prideful as to think that you can't memorize God's word? I love it when Christians tell me, I can't do it, Pastor, I don't have a memory. Well, that may be true. But it seemed that you remembered how to put your clothes on this morning. And you remembered how to drive your car. And you remembered all them phone numbers. And you remember your address. You see, you choose to remember certain things, right? You remember where your house is because you want to get home. Well, friend... If you want to make it to heaven, let me just encourage you to remember some scriptures. You see, these are the tools that God has given us. He's created you. He's not going to tell you to hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against God if he doesn't give you the ability to do it. Sure, you might not be able to memorize book, whole books of the Bible, but can you memorize one word? Be strong in the Lord. That's a word to remember. I'm strong in the Lord. That's enough. That's all you need. Brothers and sisters, let us fight against the, the evil one. Standing our ground, not with the weapons of this world, but with the word of God wielding it in our hands. The Spirit will empower and make effective God's word. By faith we trust it. It is powerful. Let us use it to overcome the evil one. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, as the main character Christian makes his journey to the celestial city, he faces many trials along the road. And one of his greatest trials is he faces Apollyon, this great evil one. It's an imagery of the devil. And the wiles and attacks. And Bunyan, in fact, wrote another allegory 
That would probably have been the greatest allegory that world had ever known had he not wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and the allegory was on the armor of God. But in the Pilgrim's Progress, as, as Krishna is making his way, as he faces the assaults and temptations, as he faces this dark dungeon, Bunyan begins to describe Christian's armor. How he has the belt of truth around his waist. And how he has the breastplate of righteousness. This righteous life that he's pursuing. And as he's got his feet fitted with that gospel message, and he's ready to share it and proclaim it, and he's held in his hand, Bunyan depicts Christian with the shield of faith and his trust in the, the word of God and the sword of the spirit and the helmet of salvation upon his head. Christian stands his ground against the, the attacks. But as Bunyan describes this amazing picture, he notices something about the armor that Christian is wearing. In fact, something that it's missing. See, in this wonderful armor of God, as it glistened and shined, what was missing was, was nothing to protect Christian's back. There was no armor for the back, no armor for the hind legs. There was nothing to protect him from any assaults from behind. And as Bunyan reflected upon this, he concluded, it must mean that Christian must never turn around. He must never run away. He must rather stand firm, for the armor of God is meant to be worn in the front. To face the enemy down. To never run and cower in fear. But is built in such a way. As to overcome all of the attacks. And so it is with us. This armor is to be applied that we might stand against the evil one. And having done all to stand firm. Brother, sister, know this. You can stand against him. You can overcome him. You can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one if you put on the armor of Christ and stand your ground. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would stand, not in our own strength, but that we would be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Your strength, O Christ, is our strength. May we be united to Christ, armored, surrounded with your power and glory. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.